Uh, turn with me if you have a Bible. It's Luke 11, verses 1 through 13. It's found on page 869 of the Pew Bible. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Hear God's word. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come, or has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you everything, give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Lord, we do ask uh, now for your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would uh, search and uh, comfort and reassure and convict and challenge uh, each of our hearts. Uh, You are the one that we praise. You are the one that we adore. Uh, You give the healing and strength that our hearts hunger for. Uh, Make our hearts hungry for what you would give and satisfy our hunger. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage begins uh, with Jesus praying. We shouldn't miss that. He went off on a certain place to pray. Uh, We shouldn't miss that Jesus himself drew strength from prayer. And when he returns, one of his disciples requests, Lord, teach us to pray. The request indicates that prayer is not something that comes naturally, not automatic once you become a Christian. It's something that must be learned, cultivated. So if only we had some authoritative teaching on prayer, if only we had a model. Well, of course we do. These verses, while familiar, at least the first part, uh, shouldn't be overlooked for the treasure trove that they are. Through Jesus teaching his disciples to pray here, he himself is teaching us to pray. And notice the disciple doesn't say, teach us how to pray, but teach us to pray. Jesus' teaching here goes beyond only the content of prayer. What we need to learn in our busy, distracted age is to learn to pray. And what we find in this short passage are what Jesus considers to be the most 
vital, necessary aspects of prayer. Aspects that if we fully absorb them, uh, as the Spirit applies them, will uh, lead us to pray and, and will transform our lives. And so let's look at these uh, three things. What are the three things that Jesus wants to teach us about prayer? It's there in your outline. Uh, the pattern of prayer, the persistence of prayer, and the provision of prayer. I don't always alliterate my sermon outlines, uh, but when I do, I go all out. Uh, all P's, you know. So first, the pattern of prayer. Jesus begins his teaching on prayer by giving them a pattern to pray, uh, what we know as the Lord's Prayer, or at least a shortened version of it. The longer version is in Matthew's Gospel. Now, we shouldn't be bothered by the fact that there are two versions that are similar but not exactly the same. Uh, they appear to actually be taught on two different occasions. The one in Matthew's part of Jesus' teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, and the one, placed, the one that's here in Luke is placed later as Jesus is teaching his disciples. Uh, they were probably recorded on separate instances. If this was a, a sort of template used by Jesus to teach on prayer, then we shouldn't be surprised that he would have taught it on multiple occasions. Uh, and you would actually expect some variation of words if the prayer was taught, again, as a pattern and not a sort of rigid command saying, say these exact words. Now, that being said, there's nothing wrong with reciting this, the Lord's Prayer, uh, word for word, which the church has found great benefit in doing corporately throughout history and privately as well. Um, my church, we pray it corporately each week, and you do as well here. We'll, we'll close our time together by praying the Lord's Prayer together. Um, Tish Harrison Warren, in her book on prayer called Prayer in the Night, makes a strong case for the value of received or inherited prayers in the life of a church or the life of a Christian. She says, when we pray the prayers that we've been given by the church or in the Bible, the, the prayers of the Psalms, the Lord's Prayer, the daily office, we're praying what we believe is true, even if in that moment we can't drum up the words ourselves. Inherited prayers then tether us to belief far more securely than our own vacillating perspective or emotion. So we believe, I believe, uh, that some repetition is a good thing. And yet there's also a danger of familiarity. Imagine you're visiting a friend's apartment in the city uh, for dinner. Your host lets you in and then steps away for a minute while you settle in. And while you're away, you hear this loud, rattling noise and everything begins to shake violently. It sounds as if something's horribly wrong, maybe an earthquake or if something is about to burst through the wall. You're about to call out to your host when the noise suddenly gets quieter and fades away. And when your host returns, you say, what in the world was that? And your host kind of nonchalantly says, what was what? Was what? Oh, that was just the train. We live right along the subway line. It bothered me at first, but I get used to it now. I guess I don't even notice it anymore. And you think, how can someone not hear that? Well, this is the danger of familiarity. Something becomes so familiar to us uh, that we don't even hear it anymore. And this may be true of the Lord's Prayer. We pray it all the time. We may regularly say these words and phrases, but how often do we stop to reflect on the profound meaning that's contained? Well, today we have an opportunity to explore that meaning of each kind of word and phrase, uh, beginning with perhaps the most profound word in the entire prayer, Father. 
Jesus not only prays to his father, but he actually teaches his disciples, teaches us to pray to God as a father. John Calvin writes that to pray to God as father is to pray in Jesus' name. The only one who has the audacity to to call a holy God father are those who know that they've been united to his son, Jesus. You see, Jesus revolutionized prayer, not only because he taught us to call God our father, but through what he has done for us, we have a restored relationship with God as a father. We are united to Christ in such a way that all that is true of Jesus, God's son, is true of us. All that Jesus deserves rightly because of his perfect righteousness, his sinless obedience, the, the status, the inheritance, the access to God, the intimacy that Jesus deserves is given to us as God's children. It's like if you were going before a king to make a request, how would you prepare? You would, you would dress in your finest clothes. You would rehearse exactly what you would say. Unless that king were your father. Then you could wear whatever you wanted. Not worry about selecting the perfect words. Not worry about cleaning yourself up or presenting yourself perfectly. You wouldn't have to give various titles of adoration unless they came from the heart. Well, our Heavenly Father calls His children to come to us as we are. Historically, it's been so hard to believe that uh, that we ordinary Christians who daily struggle to get it together could pray directly to God as Father. It's been so shocking that some uh, theological traditions historically invented different go-betweens, praying to Mary or to the saints. But through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ, we are declared to be saints, God's holy ones. That's what, that's what saints means. And Jesus teaches us to pray directly to God as Father. Because Jesus died for us, for ordinary Christians, He is the go-between. He is the only mediator between us and God. And so after addressing God as Father, Jesus then teaches us to pray uh, for two things related to God and three things for ourselves. The first thing related to God, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is not really a word that we use. We might think of Halloween, uh, which, which means the eve of the saints, it's the night before All Saints Day. Again, saints means holy ones. And so to hallow something is to honor it as holy. Name here, hallow be your name, uh, means more than just what someone is called, but their whole being and character. So when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're praying that God would be honored, worshipped, glorified as God that he would receive the honor and glory that he deserves throughout the entire created order. Second, we pray for his kingdom to come. The kingdom of God was not only the subject of much of Jesus' teaching in the Gospels, but what his miracles pointed to as well. The fulfillment of shalom, of peace, wholeness. The kingdom had come with Jesus in part, but not in full. 
So we pray that when we pray for the kingdom of God to come, that we're praying that the reign of God on earth, which is partial now, would come in full. We can pray for God's kingdom to come, uh, not only in a sort of general sense, but in our own lives. Uh, that, our, that we would be more of our future glorified self than our current self, which is uh, beset with weakness and sin. And we can pray for God's kingdom to come in the lives of those that we love as well. After the, first, uh, after the two things related to God, three more down-to-earth things for ourselves. First, give us each day our daily bread. This is a reference to uh, God's people in Exodus 16 in the wilderness receiving the manna, receiving the, the bread that the Lord provided daily. When we pray this, we are praying for God's provision, that God would uh, provide what we need, neither too little nor too much. And uh, we actually uh, read from the Old Testament. I didn't know this was going to be the Old Testament reading, but this fits very well with my point here. Um, Proverbs 30, I'm going to read verses 8 and 9 again, uh, where the... Uh, the prayer is, give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Second, verse four, we pray for ourselves uh, forgiveness of sins and forgive us our sins as we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Our forgiving others is not the ground of our forgiveness, but the argument here is from the greater to the lesser. To illustrate this elsewhere, Jesus tells the parable of the unforgiving servant, which it also uses this language of sin as debt. His parable describes a servant who was forgiven by his master, a debt that he could never, ever repay. He then could not turn around after being forgiven and demand repayment from a fellow servant who owed him a very small debt and refuse to forgive and, and, uh, or, or be patient with that individual. So if we refuse to forgive others, then there's something that we've not absorbed about what Christ has done for us. We're either not getting the debt that we owed in the first place, or we're not getting the forgiveness that is truly ours through Christ. And so even, if we, even as we pray for the forgiveness of sins, we're reminded to forgive others. And the last request for ourselves is that the Lord lead us not into temptation. Um, the, the North African church father, Augustine, points out um, that the prayer is not that we wouldn't be tempted. Being tempted in the sense of being tried and tested is inevitable. It's even necessary for our growth. But the prayer is that we would not be brought or led or enter into temptation, meaning to entertain the prospect of giving in to sin. Elsewhere, Jesus uh, gives the corresponding request, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we are tempted, as Jesus himself was, deliver us from evil. That's the instruction Jesus gives as a, a pattern of prayer here in Luke's gospel. But his teaching on prayer goes beyond just the content of prayer. This gives us uh, a few things to, to think, to kind of hang our, our hats on. But it goes beyond the content. The second crucial thing that Jesus emphasizes as he teaches us to pray is the persistence of prayer. In the second section, Jesus tells a story in which uh, the picture of the Lord shifts from that of a father to that of a friend. He's both, of course, 
but we're maybe less used to picturing God as a friend. The story is of a traveler arriving at your home in the middle of the night, tired and hungry from their long journey. And we can see some major differences between our culture and and this culture, because if this happened to us, uh, we would just be annoyed that they didn't stop and pick up something to eat at a gas station or 24-hour fast food along the highway. But in this time, nothing would have been open, uh, and the unwritten laws of hospitality were so absolute, so binding, that one was obligated to provide food and shelter. And so uh, you go to uh, knock on your neighbor's door, and and, uh, you keep knocking until they answer. Um, Maybe a better way to to sort of picture this from the neighbor's perspective is, uh, let's say that you get a call in the middle of the night from a friend, and and after you're fast asleep, uh, your cell phone rings, vibrates, whatever, several times you stir, half asleep still, you look at your phone and you mumble something, uh, why in the world are they calling at this hour? And maybe there's a a few choice words in there, I don't know. Um, Things you wouldn't repeat in front of your pastor. Um, But you silence it, you put your head back on the pillow, it rings again. You sigh and you grab the phone, same person, this time you're frustrated and you say, what could be so important? You silence it again. Well, then it rings a third time. This time you're going to answer. And you're going to give them what they want as long as they will just leave you alone. Well, I'm not suggesting that we should picture God as a a frustrated, grumpy sleeper who gives us uh, what we ask just to get rid of us. But the the point Jesus goes on to make is that God is eager to give good gifts to his children. But Jesus' point here is that we should be like the annoying caller. He invites us to verse 8, impotence. What is that? It's shameless persistence in asking. It's it's the kind of approach that makes people say, he's got some nerve. She's got some nerve. To use one commentator's words, it's a holy boldness, a sharp knocking at the door, insistent asking. It fits with an Old Testament image of the Lord inviting the watchmen of Israel to call upon him continually. This is Isaiah 62. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest. Give the Lord no rest. This is the Lord saying this. Give me no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Jesus says here, verse 9, I tell you, ask. And it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Now, does that mean that we can just ask and get whatever we want? No. Jesus will go on to address that our Father knows how to give us good gifts, what we need, not what we want. But it does mean, the first part of that question that we can ask for whatever, and that we should ask, we're told to ask. That's how we receive. I've heard different people throughout the years uh, sort of suggest to me that the only prayer that they ever pray is, or, or that you should ever pray, is thank you. Well, that sounds, that sounds nice and pious, but 
If the only thing that uh, someone that you know ever said to you is thank you, you don't have a real relationship with that person. Any real relationship that you have with a human being is much deeper than that. It involves communication, expressing things, asking for things. And how much more so with the Lord who is better than any human, who invites us to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for us, 1 Peter 5, 7. Prayer is not just about asking. There are many other aspects of prayer. But God wants us to ask, and he wants us to ask persistently. Not because he's unwilling and must be pressed, but as a demonstration that we truly want something. And because he wants us. He wants that relationship. I've said this uh, before. Maybe I've said it here. Uh, one of my seminary professors used to say that the Old Testament is a 4,000-year argument with God. That we're shown in the scriptures people wrestling with God. We think of Jacob physically wrestling with God. Uh, but others are wrestling with God in prayer. Abraham, Moses, Job. Naomi, David. As God's children, we are, are free to bring all of our emotions and desires before him continually. No edit. And when we do, our, our, our circumstances may change from those prayers. We ourselves will certainly change. right? Because what we see in the Bible, all those who wrestle with God come away with a greater sense of awe of who God is. So there's a tension here between wrestling with God on the one hand and conceding that something is God's will and ceasing to pray. There's a tension. I think most Christians in our circles tend to be a little too willing to concede something rather than persistently bring it before God. I've been challenged, convicted by this this week myself. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, here's a famous New Testament example of his mysterious thorn in the flesh. He says, three times I pleaded. He didn't just ask, he pleaded on three occasions with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And then Paul received an answer. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You see, no is just as clear an answer as yes. After pleading three times and receiving an answer, Paul is, is able then to see that this thorn, whatever it was, was uh, to keep him from being conceited and was to enable him to boast in his weaknesses in that they drive him like a nail into the love of God. God gives good gifts even if we can't see that they're good in the moment. And that brings us to the final thing that Jesus wants to teach us on prayer, which is the provision of prayer. The picture of God we're given in the final section is that of a father once more. Verse 11, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Again, to emphasize, our persistence in prayer is not because the Father is unwilling. He is both willing and able in his goodness and wisdom 
to give good gifts to his children who come to faithfully ask. As Tim Keller has said, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked if we knew everything he knows. This is actually depicted well in, um, of all places, in the movie Bruce Almighty. The plot, you can remember the plot. Um, it's maybe a bit irreverent, but Jim Carrey, his character is given uh, God's powers, and but with that he receives all of the prayer requests. Uh, it's, it's so many requests that he decides that he's just going to answer yes to all of them. He grants them all. So then there's this, it flashes to this kind of funny scene at a, at a gathering or party of some kind in which you hear several conversations of prayers that uh, we assume have been answered. One guy exclaims that his tech stock has tripled in five days. One woman says to a man, you seem taller. And he says, I am. <laughs> and the woman replies, I lost 47 pounds in a week on the Krispy Kreme diet. <laughs> And then it flashes to a TV where the newscaster says there were 11,000 winning lottery tickets in the city of Buffalo alone. <laughs> that actually leads to riots when the state can't pay out and things get worse from there. Thankfully, we pray to a God who is not only not overwhelmed by our prayers, but delights when we ask and knows how to give good gifts to his children, not what we ask for, but what he in his infinite wisdom and infinite love knows is best for us. Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, which I would highly commend to you, uh, interweaves with his, his sort of teaching on prayer the story of his own family, how he prayed uh, specifically for years, how he wrestled with God, uh, that his daughter Kim, who has special needs, would one day be able to speak. And how as much as he questioned God, he's now able to look back and see the beauty of who Kim is and how much she's been responsible for drawing their, their family together and how God answered his prayer in an unexpected way through a speech computer through which she's able to communicate. He tells the story that the first time he took her with him on a speaking trip, a little girl came up and asked her, why don't you speak? And she typed on her computer, I will have a beautiful voice in heaven. How many of our prayers will be ultimately answered, eternally answered, when his kingdom comes in all of its fullness? The Lord in his love and wisdom knows which to grant now and which to grant when his kingdom comes. Sometimes now, as it says in Isaiah, he waits to be gracious to us. Verse 13, if we who are evil, that word evil may bother us. It's kind of striking. We usually reserve that for the people or actions that we think especially horrendous, right? But innate human sinfulness was a basic assumption of Jesus. As John puts it in his gospel, Jesus himself knew what was in man. And we are being contrasted here with the Heavenly Father, who's perfect. Don't miss that. 
Jesus' point then is, if human fathers, flawed and marred by the evil of the fall, who can't understand the deeper motives of our own hearts, if we know how to give good gifts to our children, how much more will the Heavenly Father, what does it say? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him. Kind of a surprise twist there, huh? What we see here is that God's best answer to His children's prayers is Himself. That the gift of the Holy Spirit is our highest good. He's what we really need. Sometimes our prayers for things that we think that we really need amount to prayers that would allow us to no longer depend on the Lord. And that would be the worst thing for us. The flip side of that, the trials and adversity of life, which we would never ask for, often provide the conditions for us to grow in our prayer life, to grow in our faith. As Paul Miller writes, learned desperation is at the heart of a praying life. John Newton, the great uh, minister and uh, great hymn writer, known for Amazing Grace, but he wrote so many great hymns, uh, wrote a hymn called I Ask the Lord. Some of you may know it, may know the Indelible Grace version, that's where I encountered it. Um, If not, you can find it on uh, Spotify or wherever you get your uh, tunes. Uh, and it, I, it's called, I Ask the Lord, it goes like this, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. I might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. It was he who taught me thus to pray. He taught me to pray like this. And he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? It's in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break your schemes of earthly joy that you may find your all in me. His best answer to our prayers is himself. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 Can we really doubt that God will give us what is best? What we most need? He gave what was most precious. He gave his son on the cross to make us his own children. He himself is the ultimate answer to our prayers. He gave his son for us. He gives us his spirit. And we have not received the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but the spirit of sonship, through whom we cry out continually, Abba, Father. May the awe of this gospel truth teach us to pray. 
with gratitude and boldness and confidence in our Father. Father, hallowed be your name. You are worthy of all honor and power and glory and praise. And so, Lord, we pray that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done on earth as in heaven. We think especially, uh, we, we recognize especially that your kingdom has not fully come when we look at the situation in Ukraine, which breaks our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, strengthen, that you would comfort. We lament the situation. We pray that you would rescue. We pray that, that evil would not triumph. Lord, we pray for your church there. We pray that you would strengthen them uh, for the road ahead. We pray that they would be uh, your agent, your body, uh, showing Christ to many people. We pray for your church in Russia. Lord, that you would strengthen them in this uh, difficult time. Lord, we pray for your church all over the world as we uh, pray also for uh, this fledgling church in Bangladesh, which we rejoice to hear of. We rejoice at, uh, at that the good news is spreading there and that you've allowed, called Troy and, and others uh, who partook in his trip there, praying and giving, to be a part of your work there. We pray specifically for Manon, Lord, that you would reveal, continue to reveal the great glories of your love for us in Christ. That he would know and believe and that that town would be uh, transformed by his witness. Lord, we don't know what you will do, but we know that you are at work, that your kingdom uh, will come, that there will be a day when we are together, gathered around your throne, people of all nations and tribes and languages, falling on our face before the Lamb who is slain. Lord, give us a vision of that now. And so we pray as you uh, taught your disciples, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.